This is the Life in the Front Office podcast. I want to first thank all of our listeners to making this a success and helping us continue to grow. We bring on sports executives and professionals from around the industry, all different aspects of the industry, to provide insights and advice for those who are trying to enter the sports industry or those who are already in the industry just looking to learn something new and continue to get better. If you like our episode, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, leave a review, and visit our website at lifeinthefrontoffice.com for more episodes. Welcome to today's episode on Life in the Front Office. I'm your host, Jake Hirschman, and really excited for today's guest, Neil Davis, President of Sales and Partner at Riptide Partners. Um, that doesn't necessarily describe what Neil has accomplished, though, in his career as he's been uh, at many different places uh, along, along his journey, uh, a New Yorker, and really excited to, to talk about his, his career in sales. Um, I'm not going to steal his thunder, so I'll let Neil kind of let us know where he's been and what he's accomplished, and, and then we'll dive into the world of sales. Neil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jake. Pleasure to be here with you. Absolutely. So, so give us a little insight into uh, your time at Madison Square Garden and then to the Nets and, and so on and, and how you got to where you are now. Sure. Um, so I hate to admit, but it's been, uh, been many years uh, already. It's hard to, to believe that I've been in the sports and entertainment world now for, for over 30 years. Um, but uh, I always had aspirations to uh, be involved in sports in some capacity. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I wasn't uh, good enough to be a professional athlete, but I did play high school ball, basketball, and baseball, and I, I knew my passion and enthusiasm was for sports. And uh, I knew at some point I would be there, <clears throat> excuse me, in some capacity, uh, but not sure, you know, where and when. Um, but interesting to note, back in, uh, in the early 80s, um, I guess the proliferation of sports marketing uh, – was was really non-existent uh, back in the day. Uh, ESPN was just launching uh, Sports Illustrated and over-the-air broadcast ABC Y World of Sports. That's what really sports was from a marketing and um, sales perspective. There wasn't really. Uh, I think MSG Network was uh, one of the first regional sports networks to come aboard. Uh, probably in the early 70s, I believe, or late 69, I think it was when it was uh, formed. But really, there wasn't what you see today. Um, so uh, interesting enough, um, when I started my career out, uh, it was really hard to break into the sports world. So uh, my sister had worked uh, for an in-house advertising agency, uh, in White Plains, New York, and uh, I had done some internships uh, with her and her company over the summer, and uh, that got me into the advertising business, and I, my first career job was working for an advertising agency uh, called Wells Rich Green, um, but I always knew that I wanted to somehow break into the world of sports and, and entertainment. 
And but that enabled me to uh, touch base with a lot of people in the advertising world. Um, and that afforded me contacts and people that did business with various companies uh, in the sports world. And short story um, was that a friend of mine who had worked for Gray Advertising in New York City uh, was doing work with Madison Square Garden Network and spending some money. She was a, uh, a network buyer um, and had done some business with MSG and knew a couple of the account executives there. And she had uh, found out that there was an opening for an account executive position at the garden. And so I followed up with the appropriate people and uh, started my career uh, at Madison Square Garden um, in 86 um, with uh, MSG Network. And you were there for, for 19 years, right? And, and you went to uh, take your talents to the Nets uh, a little bit shortly after that. What was, what was the experience like going from such, um, such a role with, with MSG for so long to then uh, an organization such as the Nets? Well, I think what was interesting is Madison Square Garden, uh, you know, the mecca uh, of sports and entertainment, um, and also from a media perspective, uh, had basically at some time in my career had pretty much all the sports um, from a media perspective on MSG Network. So if you wanted to buy sports and you wanted to buy any of the professional teams, uh, you really had to come through us. And uh, we were probably, I would say, and I'll get to, to your to answer shortly, but what was, what was interesting about MSG is that um, we really took all the assets that we had. Um, so we had the network, we had most of the teams on our network, and then we had the building. And then signage was really starting to come into play um, in the late 80s, early 90s of uh, hockey signage, you know, dashboards and basketball with the courtside signage. And then the garden and having signage uh, there and really being fully, um, you know, you would take a look at all the assets that you had. So you go to the marketplace uh, with all these assets. And so it was a lot different when you then were going to the Nets. And when I went over to the Nets, it was primarily to oversee uh, the chief revenue officer of their move to Brooklyn. So I was really selling uh, Brooklyn, uh, which was back in uh, 2006. Uh, and on my business card, I'll never forget, it said coming to Brooklyn in 2008. <laughs> and we didn't, we didn't break ground, unfortunately, until 2010. But uh, we were selling the dream of the first time ever um, a team – uh, playing in Brooklyn since the Dodgers had left in, uh, I believe it was uh, 58. Um, so uh, this was a, a golden opportunity to go and talk to, you know, many, many different advertisers about bringing the Nets to Brooklyn, uh, which was very cool and unique and different. So and ir ironically, the site where the Barclays Center is right now it was the site where uh, the Dodgers had played before they left to go to L.A. Oh, wow. Interesting. 
Well, and I mean, you talk about, um, you know, you're trying to, to sell a, a dream for four years, right? How do you, how do you keep the expectations? And we'll dive into kind of the sales process and the strategy behind it, but how do you keep the expectations of the people that maybe you sold a deal in year one and, and then all of a sudden it didn't come to fruition for another three years? Well, I would say that that was probably the trickiest um, part of my sales career um, in what you just said. But the reasoning behind that, which was made it even more trickier, was the fact that we had such uh, a number of lawsuits that were going on with regards to the site. And so we were out there, in, like I said, in 2006, we were fortunate enough to uh, talk to many, many client clients. We did have, I think uh, we had about, at that time, probably about eight interested parties uh, in doing the naming rights. And uh, the one that we decided was the best and the most appropriate um, due to the relationship that we had um, going through the process was with Barclays Bank, which we ended up doing the deal with Barclays. As you know, it's the Barclays Center. Mm -hmm. But to your point, we, we had done the deal. And as you know, it takes a considerable amount of time before you dot the I's and cross the T's. Um, that in 2007 and 2008, when we did the deal, uh, we had some issues in 2008 came from a financial perspective right. and uh, we had Frank Geary, who was the architect when we originally went to Barclays and this was going to be uh, Bruce Ratner had purchased 21 acres in downtown Brooklyn and this was going to be a mixed use. It's, it was going to have hotels, residential, retail as well as the Barclays Center. And uh, with 2008 occurring and the financial hit that did occur, um, Bruce Ratner decided to change, not use Frank Gehry. Uh, everything kind of slowed down on the mixed use process. And we had to go back to Barclays and say, we're not using Frank Gehry as the architect. So as soon as that got out and we had a contract signed with Barclays, um, and at that time, the proliferation of sports venues in New York was going through um, a very fascinating time because everybody was now building a new stadium or an arena. So you had the Yankees in the process of building a new Yankee stadium. City Field was uh, upon us. The Meadowlands was building a new building. And when word got out that um, A... We were changing architects and that also we were still having litigation issues and we still had not broken ground, even though we did have a contract with Barclays. Uh, that gave the opportunity to the various um, companies that were representing uh, the stadiums that I mentioned to to go and reach out to Barclays and basically say, oh, this is never going to happen. Don't spend your money in Brooklyn, you know we've already broken ground, spend your money with us. And thank God we had a very loyal client in Barclays and they believed in us and they believed that this was eventually going to get done and they stayed with us, which was pretty remarkable. Wow. Talk about adversity and, and, you know, a problem that's probably 
almost like a perfect storm, right? The financial crisis, the multiple buildings. I mean, you can't really draw it up uh, any crazier. Um, in terms of then, you know, you went from the Nets to down south in Florida, and then we'll get to your, your move across the country to the West Coast in, in the Pac-12. Um, what, what have you learned uh, moving, whether it's from coast to coast, um, but do the different demographics or areas of the country sell differently uh, versus others? Are there different things you have to worry about, research, strategy, tactics, cultures? Uh, yeah, I think you always uh, have to deal with the culture that you go into, what market you go into, and anytime you go into a market um, and you're not known and you're running sales, you know, you have to get into the forefront of meeting people and having you're the face, you know, of the company uh, of going out. And so I think it's critical that you really meet the, the culture and the local, you know, uh, local advertising community um, so they know who you are. Um, I think that's very, very important. But any but anytime you move to a different uh, state city, um, I think. Besides that, the most important thing is the people that you have um, on the staff or the people that you need to bring in. I mean, because then becomes all about the culture, uh, what you're trying to accomplish um, and bringing in the best people um, to to work together and believe in the philosophy and the strategy that you set when you come into a new um, a new role. In your process of going into these new roles, whether it was your move from MSG to the Nets to Florida to Pac-12, was there a different strategy each time? And did you have to adjust your strategy based on the personnel and the uh, skills that your group had? Well, I think, um, you know, Brooklyn, not so much. Uh, the only the only thing I would say from a strategy or philosophy is what worked in the Meadowlands for the Nets was not going to work as we moved to Brooklyn. And so and at that time, you know, Brett Yormark uh, was the CEO of uh, of the Nets and. Um, you know, the, the Nets had some issues as far as uh, advertising and getting real true value um, in New Jersey. Uh, the attendance was not there. The team was unbelievable, um, but they didn't really have the backing of the advertising community. Um, and they, they weren't able to uh, do deals that were significant, um, you know, to the degree that Madison Square Garden had done. And the garden philosophy was always less is more. Um, when the Nets were in Brooklyn, it was more and more, you know, advertisers, as many advertisers as you could get, uh, of course, for less money. So when we were going to Brooklyn, the philosophy and the strategy had to change because we were going into a new building. We didn't want to have 100 advertisers. Uh, the less is more approach uh, the naming rights and founding partners, and we were able to pretty much go to the market in that aspect. Um, when I went down to Florida, when I brought my talents to South Beach along <laughs> with, uh, LeBron. With, my friend, with my friend LeBron, um, great quick story on that was I had taken the job 
um, it, just before the free agency um, that year, that summer. And uh, I'll never forget, I, I, I took the job and I had a vacation planned in Italy with my wife before I went down to Florida. And we were at the end of June, right before the free agency, right? Or right at the time um, that the free agency was occurring. And at that time, Pat Riley had only one signed player um, on the roster. So you knew he was going in and he was trying to, you know, uh, sign as many players as possible and stars as possible. But I remember going on my on ESPN.com when I was in Italy and seeing that D Wade was uh, going to talk to the Chicago Bulls. And, uh, and then the next day it said, okay, D Wade's second meeting with the Bulls. And I was like, oh, my God this will not be good if D Wade signs with the bulls. Nobody will want to come to play for the Miami heat. Well, as everybody knows a day later, both he and Chris Bosch uh, signed to play with the heat. I'm pretty excited. I'm going down to Florida and we'll have a pretty good team to sell in Miami. And then when I got back to the States, that's when LeBron made his announcement of where he was bringing his talents to. And I really did not think that LeBron was coming down to Miami and was pleasantly surprised that he chose the heat. Um, so my first week uh, in the office, I get a call from my boss in LA and he goes, Neil, the good news is you got LeBron. The bad news is your budget just went up $2 million. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, that's fine. I'd rather have LeBron. Um, you know, and we'll we'll get to that number. And uh, so talking about the strategy and the philosophy, you know, the the, the Heat were, were a pretty decent team uh, before LeBron. They had won some championships, but then prior to LeBron, they've had they had a tough go of it. So now all of a sudden you're going to a new market uh, salespeople that you have inherited um and your mission is to go out and change the, the culture, change the strategy and the philosophy to the marketplace. So the biggest thing is you really had to convince your salespeople because they have to buy into it. They have to go out to the marketplace. Um, and you're going in with, you know, significant increases, especially for the Miami Heat. Um, and at that time, they really didn't do too many multi-year deals. Uh, we knew LeBron and, and D-Wade, those guys were signed for, for a number of years. So, <clears throat> A, we went in with higher prices, and the other process was we needed to sell multi-year deals. So those were some of the things when you say about changing, you know, the strategy and the philosophy, those were all taken into place. No, that's a that's a great example. And and with that, was there a process along, you know, just kind of throughout your career that you kind of trusted and stuck with? And obviously, and I'm sure it changed along the way as, as you continued to learn and grow. But from a sales perspective, for those who are trying to get into the industry or those who are currently in it, whether they're in ticket sales, premium sponsorships, media ads, etc. Um, is there a process that's, you know, pretty much the same more or less across the, across the board 
that anyone can kind of use throughout their career? I mean, I, I, I think, you know, you look at depending on where you work and depending on the timing and the, uh, the people that you have working for you. Um, I think it's important that as you go through the process to answer your question from can you take it with you? I think for the most part you can, especially if you've been successful. Um, if you haven't been successful, then you have to <laughs> time to change, to, yeah, time to change, time to change. But, you know, you have to adapt to certain things. Uh, but for the most part, I think you, you have that strategy, uh, you have that philosophy and you need to sell that internally to your sales team and you have to have them believe in what, what you're thinking. And I think what changed, you know, and you get buy-in is when you go out there and you firmly believe in what you're doing. And as the lead or the head of that organization, you know, they watch, you know, the salespeople watch. And so if you're out there doing what you're asking them to do and you see that you're committed in doing it, then I think it makes it a lot easier. And then when you're able to stand up to clients that have not been willing to pay, you know, and don't, and basically, you know, are, are looking at, oh my God, there's a new sheriff in town and now he wants to, you know, change the rates and do this and do that. You have to be, you know, fair, but you have to stay strong. And if you do that and you believe in your product and you believe that, you know, you're going to, guarantee all the things that you say you're going to do when you go into the marketplace. Um, I think the salespeople buy into that and they see it and then it makes it a lot easier for everybody. Well, and from a success standpoint, you, you know, you, you just mentioned believing in the product, believing in the process, but it's also, you know, a little bit of believing in yourself too, right. And, and having the confidence to make the ask or, uh, you know, a lot of people can, can get that meeting maybe, but when they when they truly come down to it and they're asking for a half a million dollars or or whatever the amount might be, you know, making that ask is a lot harder than it maybe seems. Um, what were you know the one or two things that that you've kind of developed along your career to have that that self confidence and that um, ability to sell yourself before you go sell someone else? Well, I think uh, to your point, I think you take that experience that you've had, right? And what's been successful. And, you know, when you're dealing with people, you know, the trust factor is such a critical point. And especially when you go into a new market and people aren't sure, but they don't know you from that perspective. But if you follow what's worked in the past for you, and, you know, Basically, you only have your name as a reputation of who you are. You know, you can work for the most iconic Madison Square Garden, Brooklyn Sports and Entertainment. But in the end, it's about you. And so if you're true to yourself and true to your clients and, you know, basically go out and say, this is what you're going to do. And you back those up and you take care of your clients and you do the right thing. So that gives you that confidence. So when you go to different marketplaces and different clients that, you know, it's worked that way and it should work if you follow the same, you know, same path. No, it's fantastic. And, and then last question for you as we kind of wrap up the episode, I think this is something that a lot of people could hopefully relate to, but 
let's say you don't have any sales experience, or maybe you've worked in another department, whether that's, you know, operations or facilities or events, um, along the way throughout your career, no matter what you're selling at some point, it may not actually be a physical product. It may not actually be uh, for a certain amount of dollars, but you're selling yourself, whether that's in an interview, you're selling yourself sure. to your boss, to your organization, whatever it might be. Can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, really selling yourself, but also like, how do you, if you aren't in sales at all, how do you find those things that quote unquote could make you a salesperson? Well, I think, I, I think the most important thing is integrity, right? Um, and, you know, when you talk to people um, to make sure that, you know, people say a lot of things, but they end up not doing them. So I think, that integrity is an, an integral part of when you're selling yourself. And, and especially early on, I mean, you don't have that career where people can check on you to see um, what you've done. And, you know, you don't have as many contacts in the, in the, in the business world. Um, but, you know, hopefully you come across when you're doing that interview and you're trying to sell yourself, you're trying to sell yourself as a good human being, someone that will work, you know, from a teammate perspective, team oriented, care about other people um, and, and have integrity. And I think if you have that, no matter what you're doing, you know, and you work hard and you're a smart person, you will be successful, you know. Um, and, and, and then, you know, hopefully having good people to mentor you, um, having a rabbi there to guide you, you know, I think, I think that's important. And, uh, and then you learn, you know, by being in meetings and seeing how people handle certain situations. I think that's the growing process as you, um, you know, further your career and whether that's, and whether you're selling or not selling. And to your point, Jake is you're, you're selling yourself always, whether it's a job or whether, it's in marketing or whether it's in sales, you're always selling yourself to, to a certain degree. And so what do people look for? They look for qualities in, in, a, in a human being that they want to they wanna work with and work with. No, that's fantastic. One of, one of our co-hosts, Pat Gallagher, talks about how sales experience is so important. You don't necessarily, but to your point, you don't necessarily have to get real sales experience, but you're always selling yourself and, and you've got to be able to sell yourself. So um, appreciate that, that advice and I uh, can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast today. Um, any, any last words for our, for our listeners? Well, I think it's an exciting time to be in the sports and entertainment world. Uh, so much is changing. You know, technology is, is changing uh, the way people look at sports. It's going to be interesting to see the younger generation and how they adapt um, and, um, you know, how do people, um, you know, today's, today's young children, you know, the children are, are, and young adults are consuming, you know, sports and entertainment much different than, you know, what I was doing. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out over the next couple of years. No, definitely. And, and we'll certainly keep an eye out for, uh, you know, all the different, modes of technology and streaming and and 
you know, social media. I'm sure there's, you know, we talk about Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter right now, but, you know, five years from now, we don't know what the next name of the next platform is going to be. Uh, it'll be something, and it'll be something substantial, but we just don't know, so. Right, and it'll be it'll also be very interesting to see with these new venues um, and what they're creating, you know. It'll be interesting to see uh, when the Rams and the Chargers in that building, um, the SoFi uh, Stadium is built, and and how does that, you know, how does that experience differ, differ from other venues, you know, uh, AT&T Stadium, you know, um, it, it, it'll be very interesting and see how how that will take place no, over the next couple of years. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Neil. Um, best of luck to you as, as you head into the rest of 2019. And uh, we we'll certainly love to have you on the podcast again to uh, talk more sports. We'd love to, Jake. Thanks for the time and uh, enjoy the rest of uh, your evening. I want to take the time to thank you for listening to Life in the Front Office. And if you liked our episode, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. We greatly appreciate it. And for more episodes, visit us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on our website at lifeinthefrontoffice.com. And please continue to share uh, with your colleagues on social media and help us continue to grow. Thanks.